Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 27. We're going to cover all of chapter 27. We're nearing the end of the book. One more week, and then we're going to start a new series where we just look at the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians. So uh, Acts chapter 27 is what we're looking at. So make your way there. And um, it involves some, uh, some seafaring danger. Any of you guys like uh, cruises? You ever go on a cruise? I've been on a cruise. No interest. No interest in ever being on a cruise. I've never, I haven't wanted to go on a cruise since I saw Titanic, and, which is, I don't even remember. I remember it was like a super sappy movie where everybody died, right? And so I liked one part of it. And it was, uh, it was just like a weird kind of a thing. I was like, I don't want to ever be out there. I don't like the idea of it. And then recently, like on TikTok and all these social media, I'm seeing all these accounts of people on cruises where there's flooding and like, in, and the people's uh, tipping, and there's glasses and tables flying all over the place. No, thank you, not interested at all. I don't even need all that because I've read Acts chapter 27, and I'm not down. I don't want to be in, in a boat like that. But I, I think it's interesting, like the whole idea of a cruise, right? Because, you know, my perception, and I think most people's perception of a cruise is that this is idyllic, this is paradise on a giant city that floats around the Caribbean, right? And it's, it's, it, it's this retreat into bliss and luxury and ease of life and people go on it and then chaos like it's it is it is listen a curveball like that when you're expecting something to be not just good but pleasant and and like and paradisical right you're expecting that and then it turns into a nightmare a genuine genuine nightmare it is radically disorienting and Life is a lot like that, right? Like we have expectations for things to go a certain way. And hopefully none of us expect perfection, but we have ideas. You know, we have agendas, we have plans. And sometimes life throws something at us that we aren't expected, something that is painful, something that is difficult. And the response is we almost conclude that life is either cruel or chaotic. And I'm sure you felt like that before, like, wow, life is cruel, Right? It's mean, it's just out to crush you, it's dark and bleak. Or it's chaotic, there's no rhyme or reason to it, there's no sense to be made of it. And when you're reading Acts 27, you really get to a point in Paul's life, the Apostle Paul's life, where it would have been a, a normal sort of conclusion for a guy in his situation to be like, life is cruel and chaotic, right? It's, it's both. But I think what Paul knows and what we do see even in this chapter is this principle. And this is the principle I want you to take with you throughout our time together and hopefully take with you home today. The principle is this. God's providence and protection do not eliminate pain, but do establish purpose. God's providence and protection do not eliminate pain but do establish purpose, and purpose becomes critically important to us. So that's what we're going to see. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the passage on the front end. I'm just going to walk us through it rather quickly. We're going to walk us through the entire passage, and then we're going to get to the point, what I just articulated for you, that principle, okay? So first, the passage, and if you don't know where we're at in Acts 27, the Apostle Paul is under arrest, even though he's innocent, 
Uh, he is under, uh, he essentially was attacked and charged by some in Jewish leadership who have been hating on Paul for a while. Um, they don't like his influence, they don't like his teaching, and they are afraid, I think, they are afraid of the influence Paul is having, uh, not only into the Jewish world, but into the, the Roman world and into the non-Jewish world. And so for a variety of reasons, they're coming after Paul. They want him dead. They want him to shut up. They don't like how he deals with the scriptures. And so uh, they've made false accusations about him. Uh, he is under arrest by Roman authorities, and as the Roman authorities have examined Paul, they keep finding, like, ain't nothing wrong with this guy. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't break the law. Um, he's not doing the things that they're claiming that he does. And so Paul has made an appeal. Let me be tried by Caesar, because Paul is not only a Jew, but he's also a Roman citizen. He goes, I, I'm innocent of all of this, but this is a serious capital offense that they want to charge me with. I want to go to Caesar. So they said, fine, you can go. Let's go. They're going to go to Italy. They're going to go to Rome. And where he can plead his case properly. So in chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, they are off. They're on their way. It says this. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoner to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Okay, so we have Paul is grouped in, he is lumped in with a bunch of prisoners, right? These, it's, it's, it's convicts, right? They're all together. Paul's in the midst of it, and uh, they're going to go on a, <laughs> a ride. And it, it's not like they have like these... Um, these passenger ships, right, that people take for pleasure. Really, the only way to do this for them to get there to Italy is for them to take commercial ships. And so you have uh, Julius, right, the guy that's in charge of all the soldiers that are watching over these prisoners. And so they get everybody on uh, a commercial ship, and they're going to sail slowly. They're going to make their way going port to port all the way through to, uh, to Rome. That's the plan. And immediately as they get on their way, in verses 3 through 8, uh, they run into some trouble. Now, in verse 3, we learn a little bit about uh, Julius. It says, The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. So Julius is cool, right? I mean, he's not, he doesn't seem to be a Christian, uh, but it, for some reason, he shows respect to Paul. Uh, he, he, he shows kindness to him, compassion. He's basically lets Paul go. He's like, listen, uh, while we're in port here, right, uh, you go ahead and see your friends. We know you got friends everywhere, preaching your, your little preaching thing, you're starting your churches. Find your friends, be cared for, be well. We're watching. We got you, but go do your thing, and then uh, we'll get on our way in a little bit. So Julius is cool. Uh, he's treating Paul kindly. And then there is, um, they, they set sail, right? They, they, they leave, and just to clear this up, it says in verse 4, And putting out from sea, there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. The lee of Cyprus is a way of saying they sailed close to uh, the, the shores of the islands uh, to protect themselves from the dangerous winds that were kicking up, right? The problem is, is they're sailing at a time of year where the weather is not favorable. Uh, it's dangerous to be set and sail out uh, in, in the conditions that they're about to face, and we're going to... We're going to see that. So that's what it means. They keep saying, uh, sailed under the, the lee of particular islands. So they are uh, making their way. And then in um, verses 5 and 6, we read they're changing vessels. And this is the normal stuff that you would do on a long journey. When they had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. 
There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Right, so you get the idea. Like this is just, they're, they're making their way port to port, sailing on until we begin to see the trouble. The trouble, we, we begin to see it in verses seven and eight. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. Finally, Fair Havens. Easy to say. Sounds like a neighborhood in St. Charles. Like, oh, you're li- I live in Fair Havens. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassi. All right, so they're, 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 they're encountering the bad weather that comes with sailing at this time of year. So it's not unexpected. It's just not fun. This is a problem, and it's going to become an increasing problem uh, for these people that are sailing together. In fact, the storm uh, is something that Paul knows is going to happen. It's going to get bad. And so he issues a warning in verses 9 and 10. It says, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much lost, and not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also our lives. So a couple things. One, the fast has ended. Like, what are we talking about? Well, it's the day of the atonement fast. That's the time of year that it is. And when Paul was let go to go hang out and chill with his friends and be cared for, uh, they were observing the fast in accordance with Jewish law. So the fast is over. And Paul said, they're back on on board this ship. And Paul says, uh, danger is coming. This is risky. Uh, We are likely to not just lose cargo. You're not just going to lose your ship. Everybody's going to die. Why would Paul say that? Did God tell him that? Nope, God did not tell him that. Paul said it because he's smart. He just knows. You know, like, this is a bad time of year. This is not the time to be out there. The risk is real. So he's telling, he's just trying to warn you. He's being a good person. He's like, listen, this is dangerous. You might want to think just chilling out here and not going any further. But, of course, they ignore Paul. It says in verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea, and from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor with Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So that's the plan, right? We're just gonna, we're gonna go for it and see if we can make it to Phoenix. So they go, and they encounter the storm. The storm. In verse 13, it says, And now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete. To weigh anchor is to bring it up. I know it sounds like you weigh something down, but to weigh your anchor is to bring it up so you can get going. So they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore, right, avoiding those winds. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the satyrus, uh, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since 
we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is bad times. This is scary stuff. This is nightmare fuel, terrifying. There is nothing that you can do. There is no way to fix this situation. There is literally no escape for them. The storm is brutal. And, and, and what are they doing? They're throwing off cargo. They're, the crew are throwing off their instruments by which they get the ship under control. And all they could really do, it says, is they could bring up the dinghy, right, and, and, and strap it down on the upside of the boat, and then they, they take the ropes and they undergird the, the belly of the boat. It's all they could do, just to hope and, and pray that it wouldn't fall apart in the storm. In the midst of true fear, Paul takes the opportunity to say, I told you so, which is like, it's not wrong to say that. It's not a sin to say that. <laughs> because it feels so good. You know, it's, it's not wrong to say I told you so. It's just rude. It's just not, it's not polite, right? And Paul does it anyway. Look at verse uh, 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> I think that's awesome. I told you so. Man, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And Paul says, I told you so. That's not all that he says. Paul tells him to take heart because of God's promise. See, God didn't whisper in Paul's ear. He didn't send an angel to tell Paul that uh, they were all at risk of dying in a storm, but he did send an angel to talk to Paul about their protection. Paul says in verse 22, yet I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Paul says, take heart. Take heart. Be courageous. I know you're afraid. I know this is crazy. We're not eating. It's, it's dark. It's, it's, it's frightening. We're not seeing stars or sun. It's going on and on and on, and we've lost all hope. I know we, everybody lost hope. We're going to die here. I'm telling you, God promises that we won't, that we will all survive. Not one of us will die. And they've been here for how long now, it says? 14 days. That's a long time to be in that kind of a situation, right? And that's the problem with, uh, you know, curveballs. Like sometimes, you know, the, you know, a nightmare, when you have a nightmare, uh, I think it lasts, you know, a, a couple of minutes at the most, right? But in your dream, it goes on and on and on, right? In your dream world. But literally, it's only just a couple of moments of seconds. But when you experience nightmares in the real world, they oftentimes go on, don't they? They exist for weeks or months or seasons or longer. 
things that make us wonder if life is really cruel or just thoroughly chaotic. In verse 27, it says, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes and the ship's boat and let it go. Fourteen days, thoughts of escaping. They got an idea, and Paul says, it's not going to work. We've got to stay together. So Paul tells them, take heart, be courageous, stay put. God's got it. And then he then then tells them to not only take heart, but he, he tells them to take care. Look at verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged, and they ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lighted the ship, throwing the wheat into the sea. He tells them to take care. He says, listen, God's got this, but you still have to take care of yourself, right? Like, it's been 14 days, guys. Uh, eat some food, right? Because you, you need strength. You need the energy uh, because the ride isn't over, right? Th- listen, we're going to talk about how God protects, but God's promise to be with you and to be for you and to protect you it doesn't mean that he's just going to carry you in the palm of his hand and he doesn't have anything for you to do. Eat. Get some food in your system because more is on the way. We're not just enduring a storm. We are going to endure shipwreck. You see it in verse 39. When it was day... They did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. What in the world is going on? This is chaos. This is frightening. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Pause again on Paul's story. Paul's story just gets crazier and crazier as we get to the end. This is a terrifying experience. This is truly terrifying. 
And we're focused on Paul, right? Because this is largely what God has been doing through Paul. So Paul is under arrest, even though he's innocent. He has been beaten. They're trying to murder him. They're actively, these Jewish leaders uh, that are against him are actively plotting to assassinate him. So his only appeal is Caesar. That's what's going to get me out of this mess. But to get to Caesar, he has to be put on a commercial ship during the worst time of the year with a bunch of other criminals in which they're going to go through terrifying storms and they're suffering shipwreck. And it wasn't just the shipwreck that almost killed Paul. It's also the soldiers that almost killed Paul because they were going to wipe out all of these criminals so that none of them could escape and they wouldn't come under charge for it. That's, that's uh, to call this unexpected uh, is an understatement. It has to feel cruel or chaotic. But, but Paul knows, and he teaches about this, and we've covered this before, recently even. Paul believes in providence and has, has a conviction about God's protecting grace. But the principle is what? God's providence and protection does not eliminate pain but they do establish purpose. And this is what I want us to consider. I want us to consider providence, protection, pain, and purpose. Because, no, we're not, uh, we're not in Paul's situation. I'm in my situation. You're in your situation. We are all in seasons of life where um, things that appear to be chaotic and dangerous and, and frightening do appear. We can be disoriented and wonder is life cruel? Is God cruel? Is there rhyme or reason to anything that's happening? So consider with me the doctrine of providence. Now, just a few weeks ago, we covered this in Acts 23. So you can go back and listen to that, uh, how we see God's hand at work in our lives. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I just want to touch on it. Providence. How did I define it back then? A few weeks ago, I said that providence is God's continual activity and involvement in all creation at all times. It's an incredibly important foundational doctrine that we believe as Christians about who God is. He is a God of providence. He is not just, in, he's not just watching. He's not watching from a distance. He's not watching up close. He is actively involved in all creation at all times, which means there is not a second of the day or an inch of the universe where God isn't actively engaged in preserving and upholding and governing every single thing, every single molecule that moves. That's how involved and invested God is in his creation. This is important for us because the doctrine of providence reminds us that though life might feel like it is all chaos, it is not chaos. There is order. There is divine order. There is order. There is rhythm. I like to think of it as rhythm, right? There is rhyme. Uh, there is an intentional design to all that is and happens, even if we can't fully understand it. It's not chaos, but order. And if God is a God of providence, then we know that God is always at work at all times in all things. But it's important for us. I believe it's incredibly important for us to speak this, to preach this to ourselves, that God's providence is not just God is continually um, active and involved in all creation at all times. We need to say that he is continually involved in my life 
at all times. In every area of my life, in every hour of my day, God is a God of providence. At all times, in all things, in my life. It's relevant. It's foundational. And here's, here's the thing. If, if, if God is not a God of providence, then he can't, then he can't be a God of promises. Right? Because if he isn't a God who is providential over all things, organizing, sustaining, ordering, maintaining, if he isn't governing all things, then how can he possibly ensure that anything is going to come to pass in the future? If God is not a God of providence, he cannot be a God of promises. And he is a God of promises because he promises his people protection. Just like he did Paul. Now this is... This is tricky because people get this wrong when we talk about how God protects us. So the principle is seen in a number of passages. Let me just give you two passages. Uh, Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. One of my favorite verses, I love it, because God is not just a help. He is a present help, a very present help. He is up close, involved. He is with us. He is with you. He is there, and he helps the other passage is, uh, that we're considering for this is Psalm 91, verses 1 through 6. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, wings. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks by darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. God protects his people. He's got you. But it's extremely important that we understand that God protects us in danger, not from danger. Does that make sense? He protects you in the danger, not from it. Like you're, you're, you're going to get into trouble. And sometimes you bring it upon yourself, dummy. We all do that, right? I did a bad thing, I did a stupid thing, and now I'm suffering the consequences. God's not going to keep you from that trouble, but he will be with you in that trouble. It's a different way of protecting us. Sometimes you're just the, the victim of circumstances. God doesn't, listen, just because you're, you're a Christian, you're a follower, you're a believer, uh, doesn't mean that God is going to spare you from the discomforts of life. No, he protects you in danger, not from it. He protects us from death until the appointed time, right? Listen, Paul's going to die, and it's not going to be nice. We're not going to read about it in Acts, but we know later on Paul is martyred. But for now, God is protecting his life until the appointed time. So yes, he does protect our lives in that sense, but it's not God protects our lives indefinitely. He protects us until the appointed hour from death. What he really does in protecting us in danger is he protects our faith, our souls. He protects our hearts, right? This way we are protected from Satan and the world and sin itself, right? We are, we are, we are preserved in our being so that we make it to the end without wavering in our confession or in our faith, 
God does protect us. In danger, not from it. Again, see, there are prosperity preachers out there. That's what we generally call them, prosperity preachers, because they don't preach Jesus. They preach prosperity. And they actually somehow believe, well, some of them don't believe this at all. They're just liars, and they're trying to rip you off. But there are people that are misguided, and they, they believe the wrong things. And so some of them actually believe that the good news is that God promises worldly comfort and success and wealth. Now, who doesn't want to sign up for that? I was just with, uh, with Scott at Dixon State Correctional Facility, and, uh, where Scott does prison ministry. He talked to Scott afterwards if you want to get involved there. But he invited me to go with him and, and to see the guys and, and try and encourage them. And one of the biggest things that, that Scott has to combat there is prosperity preaching because what a surface level uh, way to appeal to people's most immediate needs. Believe in Jesus and you will experience comfort and wealth and success. But that's not the gospel. You don't have to read much of the Bible to see that this is not how God's people experience life. Read the prophets. What happens to them? Look at Jesus or read the book of Acts. No, uh, there is no promise of worldly comfort, success, and wealth. The gospel, though, the gospel does promise spiritual comfort and spiritual success, heavenly wealth. And here's the honest truth. Spiritual comfort, success, and wealth is usually experienced in the context of pain and chaos. It's usually how you find it. That's where God teaches it. The providence of God is real. His, his promise of protection is real, but so is pain. It's present. It's real. Sometimes we're going to suffer on account of our faith, right? We're going to be persecuted. We're going to be laughed at. We're going to be mocked. Maybe we'll get beat up, depending on where you live and, 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 and what the, the culture is like. Sometimes we suffer on account of our faith, but we must always suffer and allow our faith to help us to understand it. Our suffering will sometimes be on account of our faith, but our suffering must always be understood by our faith. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Only one who believes in the providence and the protection of God can get to this point where they can then see the purpose of their pain. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That steadfastness leads to a maturity a becoming. See, pain. <laughs> see, we, we see pain as the obstacle. Pain is the thing that gets in the way. Pain is the thing that, that shuts down our growth and our becoming and our, our transformation, but it's just not true. Too many Christians believe, like, oh man, the secret to really experiencing the fullness of God and transformation and being changed is to go to some special event where, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk, I'm gonna go to this conference, I'm gonna read this book, and then wham, everything's gonna be different. And I'm just, I can promise you it doesn't work that way. A couple weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast, not a Christian podcast, 
Uh, let's, do, let's do a podcast. Uh, anybody watch The Office? Who likes The Office? Be honest. Some of you are too, too afraid. You can, you can be honest here. Ain't nobody <laughs> judge you except me. Um, Office is a sitcom uh, featured a, a wide variety of characters that are all equally and beautifully awful. And, um, but the best one's Dwight. And uh, so Dwight was played by an actor, a comedian named Rain Wilson. And Rain Wilson is not a Christian, but he's a very spiritually minded person. He's into all kinds of religions, you know, ancient and new. And so he speaks a lot about spirituality and being kind and generous to people and all of that. Um, and he was on a podcast with a comedian who grew up as an evangelical. Um, his name is Peter Holmes. And, uh, and Peter Holmes was talking about how, uh, he was talking about ayahuasca and like trippy drugs, you know, and like that's, that's a thing that people like to do, right? They'll, they'll take these hallucinogenic drugs and they'll have this long weekend and Holmes is arguing like this is how a lot of people are tapping back into God, right? They're tapping into spirituality and they're becoming and they're learning and they're experiencing transformation. And Rain says, I ain't buying it and I don't like it. He says, listen, this is going to make me unpopular with all the cool kids, but uh, I don't think it's right. And while he works really hard to avoid being judgmental in this, what he ultimately winds up saying is, listen, the reason it's wrong is because you can't disappear for three days and be transformed. There's no shortcuts to spiritual growth or development. There are no shortcuts to God. And homeboy <laughs> got that right. I mean, that, there's, sometimes there's overlap in our faiths, right? Somebody can, have, can worship the wrong God, but they can have a proper principle that is true, and it's, of course, much more so true for us. There, there, is, there is just no shortcut to becoming the person God has designed you to be, to be the best version of yourself. There is no shortcut to sanctification and growth. It takes the Holy Spirit. It takes the Word of God. It takes the people of God, the community of faith. It takes suffering, hardship, difficulty. It's one of the instruments God uses to grow us, and therefore it takes time. God's providence and protection do not eliminate pain. In fact, it uses it to establish our purpose. Let's talk briefly about this. What is it that God has called you to be? What has God called you to do? Now, you could think of your vocation, right? What you do, your work, you're a student, you know, your husband, wife, brother, sister, son, daughter, right? You, you could think about your vocation, your, your, your shorter term, right, or temporal callings, very important. Or you can think about the one true calling of all people that we all have in common, that we are all called to be the children of God, who live for his pleasure and his glory and find our ultimate satisfaction in him, we know that our chief end, our reason for living is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That purpose, that purpose stabilizes and secures us. That purpose in the midst of pain prevents the shipwreck of our faith even if our lives suffer shipwreck. So God's providence and protection do not eliminate pain, but they do establish purpose, and purpose is the thing that orients us to the storm itself so that we know what to do, who to believe, who to trust, how to endure. And so my, my encouragement to all of us 
is to look very carefully at our lives. So let me say it like this. I've been preaching this to myself all week, so I'm going to say it to you now. Look at your life and look at yourself. Whatever you are going through, the good, the beautiful, the distracting, the dangerous, the hard, the ugly, whatever you are going through, you are going through under the providence of God. And in all of it, he is pointing you to Jesus. In all of it, he is pointing you specifically, not you plural, generally. He is pointing you specifically to Christ through your storm. And we go to Christ because there we find salvation, redemption, and we also find the example to follow. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may be also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful, faithful creator while doing good. This is why he is always leading us, pointing us back to Christ. And maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here and you're hearing and you're listening and you're like, this guy preaches long. Can we wrap it up? Please hear me. I, I can promise you that whoever you are and whatever is going on in your life, it is all there under the providence of God and he is pointing you to Jesus as well, just as he's pointing me and everyone else here to Jesus. Now listen, this passage, this will be the third time this passage has been read in this service. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is for everyone, but hear it if you are not yet a follower of Christ. Jesus went through the pain. He knows what we might call the cruelty of life or the chaos of life. He knows it better than anybody. But when he suffered and went through it, he entrusted his soul to the Father and he went through it for us to take our burden, our failures, our sin upon himself that we might be forgiven and cleansed and brought near to God, changed and transformed that we might become the people we're supposed to be. But to find Christ, you must first understand pain. And the first level of pain is our own sin. 
Let's repent. Let's turn from our unbelief, idolatry, sin, mistakes, and everything else, and look to Jesus who stands ready to receive and to help all who believe. Father in heaven, we pray that you would strengthen us and teach us that you would be with us in ways that we can feel that you would fulfill your promises because you are a God of providence. We pray that you would cause all things to work together for the good of those who love you. We pray, God, that we would find our satisfaction in you and your promises and in your son in particular before anything else in this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.